So today we'll continue on the subject of the doctrine of salvation. And last week, Pastor Ron covered the topic of union with Christ. That's what he talked about. And today I'll be addressing the topic of assurance of salvation. And I must admit that this topic of assurance is a very difficult one. Oftentimes when we think about having assurance of salvation, we only think in terms of perseverance or questions about whether a believer can lose his or her salvation. And although both of those things are related to the topic of assurance, there are many other things that must be considered. For example, we here at Faith Baptist Church believe that the Word of God is infallible and inerrant. It has no errors in its original writing. That's what we believe about the Bible. And, and we believe that it's inerrant because of the author. The author himself is God, and God is infallible. He doesn't err. But what can we say about man? Is man infallible? I'm sure most of us agree that man is not infallible or inerrant, rather the opposite. He not only errs on many occasions, but he's prone to err due to his fallenness. And man's fallibility is seen in his behavior, his claims, and more importantly, in his own perception of himself. The way he thinks about himself is not infallible. It's fallible. What does this have to do with assurance of salvation? Well, when it comes to perception, many professing Christians will one day find out that they were, in fact, not Christians. But they were people who were self-deceived. Look at a passage like Matthew 7, 21 to 23. And it reads this. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And we see from this passage that there is such thing as a false sense of assurance. Yet my hope for today is to answer biblically the question of whether or not a fallible creature like us has the ability to obtain a kind of certainty about salvation that is, in fact, infallible. Can he be sure of his salvation? We're going to find out today. Uh, and if so, if he can be, how do we obtain it, and what does it look like for a Christian to walk out our faith in that kind of full assurance? Okay, so I divided it into three subjects. You can see it in your outline. Three topics are, number one, can we know? Can we know uh, of assurance? Point number two, the grounds of assurance. And point number three, how to obtain assurance. So let's look at the first point. Can we know? That's the question. And what do I mean by can we know? What I mean is can we know with absolute certainty that we have been made recipients of God's grace and have in fact had our sins paid for on the cross and have become heirs uh, in Christ. And a follow-up question that might help to kind of clear the aim of this type of question is, how do you know whether you are not just self-deceived? Is your perception of yourself accurate? Now bear in mind that I'm not asking 
whether or not the Bible is true or if the claims of Christianity are true. That's not the question. I'm asking, rather, whether your own perception, what you think about yourself, is reliable. I'll never forget visiting a friend at the hospital one day. And he was in an accident because he got hit by a car. But what makes this case even sadder is that he got into an accident because he was under the influence of drugs, which resulted him in getting hit by a car. And this person was a professing believer, right? He was a self-proclaimed Christian. Now, prior to this accident, he was living in sin, he was doing drugs, stealing, he was living for his own pleasures, Yet he himself was personally convinced that he had saving faith and believed that since everyone is a sinner and all fall short of the glory of God, that he had nothing to worry about. And his favorite motto was that he was saved by grace and grace alone. But it was evident from his behavior that he had no remorse for his sin and in fact continued to justify his sin with the fact that everyone is a sinner. Now, in my visit to the hospital, I prayed with him, and afterward, I began to ask him questions about his walk as a believer, right? I shared my concerns, as well as some passages in Scripture, and, you know, when you do that kind of thing, if you've been there, you know how awkward that situation becomes. You're, you know, you're this kind of corny Christian opening the Bible and sharing these truths. It's very confrontational, and things get really awkward. That's exactly what happened. It got really awkward. And at some point towards the end, check this out, in the end, he began to cry, okay? And his tears rolled down his cheek, and he suddenly began to speak. And at this point, I felt hopeful. I'm like, wow, what I said might have affected him. Maybe something happened there. I was, I was feeling hopeful. I thought maybe he was going to say how much our talk was very convicting and how he feels he needs to cry out to the Lord in repentance and ask God to save him and lead him into a life of holiness. But you know what he said when he opened his mouth? He said the exact opposite of that. He said, Will, in tears, I don't know what else to tell you. All I know is that I love Jesus and I can feel that he is with me. He was saying that in tears. He said, Jesus loves me, and that's all that matters. That's what he said to me. Now, at that moment, I felt uh, heartbroken for him. And I prayed for him for days after that. But after giving much thought to it, I came to my senses, and I realized the arrogance and the sinfulness behind that. What in the world would make someone so sure, even to the point of tears, of their salvation when they live in open rebellion against God and refuse to feel any remorse over it and continue to justify it? The answer is sin. Sin blinds the person and deceives them into thinking that they are saved when in fact they're not. Now the question remains still, how do we know whether we're not ourselves self-deceived. Can we know? Can we actually know whether we are or aren't? Also think about this. Those who are self-deceived usually don't know that they're self-deceived. That's the point of being self-deceived. No one immediately identifies when they are self-deceived 
Because by definition, self-deception means not knowing the deception that you're under. And so, to answer the question, though, can a person know? I believe that the scriptures indicate that regardless of our self-deception, we have been given at least, at least, access to divine truth that is, in essence, infallible and accessible to fallible creatures like ourselves in order for us to obtain infallible assurance. This divine truth, where do we find this truth, right? You go everywhere in the world and there's no, uh, what they would call, epistemological certainty. There's no certainty about anything. Where do you go to find absolute certainty? The Word of God. Why the Word of God? I'm convinced that uh, the, I'm convinced by it because of the impossibility of the contrary. If you look at what the scriptures say and what they reveal, in comparison to every other truth claim, nothing compares. Nothing is as consistent. Nothing sheds light to darkness, reveals truth in the liar's speech, reveals truth in the liar's heart, penetrates the soul. Nothing does that the way that the Holy Scriptures do this. Here's some passages to consider. 1 John 5.13. Can someone read this? Thanks. Volunteer to read that? Oh, good. Go Thank you. So, in this verse, we see John intentionally writing doctrine for the very purpose that the reader would not only obtain eternal life, right? You have doctrine that leads you to salvation, but that's not, his, that's not the end of his goal. Uh, we see that he writes these things that they would know that they have eternal life. Therefore, assurance of salvation was his emphasis in this passage. Let's look at another verse. 2 Corinthians 5.13. Can someone read that? Thank you. So here in this verse, we see Paul commanding the church at Corinth to examine themselves to see if they're truly in the faith. So if assurance of salvation is unattainable, even by fallible man, Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, would have no reason to command the church to examine themselves. Because if they couldn't obtain absolute truth, then he'd be wasting his time saying, seek after the truth about yourself. Examine yourself. But it, it, he, he speaks indicating that it is accessible to the, even, even the corrupt mind that is uh, still part of the Christian's experience, right? We, we don't have a perfect mind yet. Uh, we, we don't have a perfect heart, yet we're able to go to something, a source that is perfect and, and does speak truth. And we can rely on the truth of the Bible. Now before I get into the question of how can we gain assurance, because that's one of the points, I want to talk about the grounds of our assurance. That should be point number two. The grounds of assurance. And this deals with the question of what exactly are we placing our assurance on? Okay? 
uh, and that's the grounds of assurance. So in the past, there have been men like uh, Puritan William Perkins, who's written a lot about the doctrine of assurance. I was trying to dig into all of it, and it was impossible for me to, to get all of his stuff. But uh, he, he says some interesting things in uh, his commentary on Galatians. Uh, he points out three grounds of assurance, uh, which he sees clearly in Scripture, and I think it's very helpful for us. And these are the three grounds that he points out. Ground number one is the promise of the gospel, which is essentially a trusting in God's word as opposed to your own fallen ideas and estimations. So his first ground is saying, trust in the gospel, right? That's, that's a ground of, uh, of uh, assurance or a, a place where you can find absolute assurance. Trust in what the gospel says. Trust in the word of God. Grounds number two is uh, the fruits of sanctification. When you see yourself or someone else bearing fruits of sanctification, those are signs, visible signs, that help you to obtain assurance. You say, wow, I'm bearing these fruit. Uh, This must mean something. And then ground number three is the testimony of the Holy Spirit, witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's taken straight out of the Bible. There is, uh, in a sense, a way to observe the Holy Spirit's work in your life as it testifies to your spirit. It basically reveals to you that you are in the faith by this, uh, by, by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you see it in many different ways. And we'll get into it. But uh, let me touch on the first one, right? The first one was the promise of the gospel. Now, it's important to start here. It's important to start by saying that the primary ground of assurance out of those three that I just listed is the promise of God found in Scripture, right? In other words, if you're seeking for assurance of salvation, you have to be willing to take your feelings out of the equation and trust in what God says about you, and not even what you say about you. Sometimes you struggle with doubt. Sometimes you may struggle with insecurities. And you, you, you think that you're the final authority on the state of your own soul. And you, you're in your room, and the lights are dark, and you're, you, you're depressed because you feel weary in your faith. You feel like you're, you're not even a child of God. But this is you accusing yourself, as opposed to going to the infallible word of God that already talks about you. It says something about you. And, and, and the point of trusting in the word of God is to take yourself out of, your, out of the equation. Take your own thoughts about yourself out of the equation and read what the Bible says about you and believe what the Bible says about you. And that's, that's the point of that. Oftentimes you may be tempted to forget that what the Bible says about you is more accurate than what you say about yourself. You have to ask yourself, by what standard are you measuring yourself with? Right? Is it the standard of your own thoughts? Are you measuring yourself by the standards of God or yourself? Again, you, you, you must abandon any confidence in your own perception and trust in what the scripture says. And this is, this is uh, one of the best ways to uh, find assurance. And this is the beauty of having the Bible with us. It's the final authority on all matters. It's the final authorities on matters of truth, Righteousness, holiness, matters of justice, 
and even philosophical matters, psychological matters, decision-making, and especially matters of spiritual doubt when it comes to whether or not you're truly in the faith. Another verse here, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. This tells us what the Bible is, what the scriptures are. And it says here, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if we agree that God's word is the final authority on all matters, now let's get into what the Bible says about us. We, we know that we have to trust in it. Now let's actually see what it says. Um, I'm going to start with this verse here, John 3.16, and this addresses the topic of uh, belief. Right? It says here, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now the question is, do you believe what that's saying? We have the most basic requirement of salvation, which is belief. This is the foundation of our union with Christ. And John tells us that if we believe in him, Jesus Christ, we will not perish but have eternal life. Now, when John is speaking about believing in him, he's, he's not speaking ontologically, right? He's not speaking, he's not saying believe that Jesus existed and that's good enough, you're, you're you know, ticket to heaven. He's not saying believe that Jesus was a real person. That, that's not, you know, that's important, but that's not what uh, John is saying. He's saying believe in him and all that he is and what he was sent to accomplish. Believe in the person, the work, all that he did, his whole life, and place your life on that. Bank your life on him. What he did, why he was sent here, uh, why did he die, the reason why he resurrected. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. A good summary of this is found in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. through 4. This is one of my favorite verses, um, but I'll let you read it. Can someone read it? Thank you. So it's a good summary of, of what we are to believe, right? Um, it, it's, it's way different than what's popular out there, right? Hey, uh, if you repeat this, the sinner's prayer, um, you know, repeat after me and you say a couple of words and you think you have a ticket to heaven. There's real substance in, in what we're believing in. This is not like say the magical words and enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is not mystical in that sense. Yet God is uniting, uh, uniting us with Christ if we believe in the person and work of Christ, including his resurrection. Now, along with this claim that Jesus died for sins and offers salvation to those who believe, there are passages in Scripture that confirm for us that those who believe will never lose this gift of salvation. I'm going to read a couple of them. 1 John 10, 28 says... I give them eternal life, and they will 
never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is eternal security. This is, uh, this is another point that helps us in our assurance. Here's another verse. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is another uh, thing to add to help you in your assurance. That if, if, if you have in fact believed, and if you have in fact been converted, God will make sure that you will make it till the, till the end. And these are just a few verses out of many that indicate that salvation is of God. And God guarantees that if you have received such a gift, you're guaranteed eternal security as the Holy Spirit will make sure that you remain in him. Now this covers the the ground of the promise of the gospel. Uh, Let's talk about the second ground, which is the fruit of sanctification. Here's one fruit that serves as evidence of true saving faith. And this fruit is obedience. Are you saved? Have you trusted in Christ? Okay, do you obey? We're going to find out about what the scriptures say about that. 1 John 2, 3 to 4. What does it say? Can someone read it? And by this we know that we have come to know him. We keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Thank you. So John makes it nice and clear. He basically says that we can know if we are saved, if we keep his commandments. And, and whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. This is a test of faith. Now, it's important to know that keeping commandments do not save you, right? We all know that. It does not save you. It is only by trusting in the work of Christ's sacrifice for your sins that saves you. And even your trust is a gift from God. We see this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. So we know that salvation is a gift. You do nothing for it. However, we see that a sign of someone who, who has true saving faith, in, uh, you, that sign in the person is their obedience to God's commandment. And this is a fruit that bears only in true believers. And again, this is just another test of, of, of knowing whether you Uh, have salvation. Another point is rejection from the world. Have you been rejected from the world or rejected by the world rather? 1 John 2.15. I'm sorry, not not rejection by the world, you rejecting the world, excuse me. Uh, 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, the kind of love for the world that John is talking about in this verse is a love that speaks to our deepest constraints, okay? Our most compelling emotions, the goals that we set, wrapped up in our desire and love for the world. And John is saying that Christians won't feel that kind of love towards the world because until the new heavens and the new earth arrives... Satan is basically the God of this world, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. So when John refers to the world, he's referring to the way of life driven by the spirit of the age. The system that encompasses the false religions, 
false philosophies, immorality, materialism, and other things like this. So when you become a Christian, these things repel you. They, they, they don't attract you anymore. Now, you know, it, I, you won't expect that immediately. You know, you come to Christ and all of a sudden you hate the world immediately. Uh, but you're moving in that direction where you no longer feel at home in this world. And this is what it means that you no longer love the world. Uh, you, you, the, the, the way that they're going, the philosophies, the things that they're about are contrary to what you're about, right? What, what, uh, what the Spirit of God trans, transformed your heart to have affections on. You long for the city of God and not the city of man. And again, this is just another test of assurance of salvation. Another point is in, in, in your assurance of salvation is love for other Christians. Do you love other Christians? 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Can someone read that passage? Thank you. Yeah. We see that uh, it's a contradiction for a Christian to hate his brother. And when he talks about brother, he's referring to brothers in Christ, the family of God. Another verse that talks about it is John 13, 35, which says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's referring to love for those in the body of Christ. So in these passages, we see a clear test of genuine faith, a love for the saints. Many so-called Christians have said, I love Jesus, but I can't stand his followers. This is a contradiction. Many who claim to be followers of Christ resist going to church or even becoming a member of a church because they feel better without committing to one local church. They want the benefits of enjoying the worship service and hearing from Christ through his word preached but do not want to deal with Christ's people. How convenient. Yet scripture tells us in 1 John 4.20 that if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. How is that possible? In other words, loving God means loving his people. Your love for other believers may not be perfect, but it must be there. And this too is a sign of assurance. Another one is suffering rejection because of your faith. Have you suffered rejection because of your faith? 1 John 3.13. Can someone read that? Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. How about the other verse, 2 Timothy 3, 12? Can someone read that? Yeah. 
Another verse, John 15, 19, says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Sometimes I have to tell that to myself. Like I have to remind myself and just settle that in me first. Like, nope, the world hates me, so don't, don't (laughs) don't try to be cool. Another verse, 1 Peter 4, 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That's, that's, that's when you know for sure. I've, I've hung out with uh, unbelievers and, you know, I'm cool for like a long period of time. We're getting along, we have a lot in common. And when, when it's time to get serious and they find out what I actually believe in, you know, e- even social things like uh, my view on same-sex marriage, uh, my view on uh, abortion and, and all these other uh, things that are coming up that are contrary to God's word, all of a sudden I'm not cool anymore. You know, it... And again, uh, the, the passage clearly paints that picture. It says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They're, they're, they're actually mad that you're not just joining them. And that factor alone is good enough to be persecuted or even pushed away and, and no longer uh, welcomed in their circles. Now, let me ask you a question. Think... Think for a moment about what you believe the Christian faith is. Is what you believe and how you live out what you believe socially acceptable for you in any circle? Is your Christianity a kind of Christianity that no one would ever have a problem with? Is it just filled with precious moments of you and God at the beach having your alone time? Is your Christianity getting... 110 likes on Facebook and Instagram. Now, this is not to say that the Christian faith isn't objectively beautiful. It is. And praise God for those Facebook likes. However, there is content in the Christian faith that are hard truths. And that will get you kicked out of that circle, that social circle. And these truths are not usually accepted. In fact, many of them can lead to social rejection and even rejection from family members. But this is the cost of being a disciple of Christ. Have you suffered rejection because of what you believe? This too is a test on whether your faith is placed on the truth of God. Now those were some examples of fruit of sanctification. Included in this, and because of the sake of time, I'm just going to list them. Other, other ways of uh, knowing whether, you're not, whether or not you're in the faith is a love for God's word, right? We see that in Psalm 119.97 that says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day. Another uh, point of assurance is that you have a pursuit of holiness. You see this in Hebrews 12.14, holiness for without which no one will see the Lord. And also the actual fruit of the Spirit in your character. 
uh, in which Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all fruits of saving faith. And finally, the, the third ground for our assurance is the testimony of the Holy Spirit, witnessing with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And we get this from Romans 8.16. I'm going to put it up here. Can someone read that? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Yes, thank you. Now, I've always read this, and I, I was confused. What is this saying? The Spirit bears witness with, my, with our spirit that we are children of God? Does he, does he come and tell me? <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, I found that funny because I, I, I never understood what, what exactly that meant. But just digging and, and trying to put it in context, what this means is, it, it, put it this way, ask yourself, have you ever, uh, for example, have you ever ministered in a spiritual way through helping someone or, or giving to someone or speaking to someone about Christ? Those are evidences of the Spirit of God, right? Do you ever experience his ministry in your life? You being used by God. This is what it means that the Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are children of God. And this doesn't mean that the Spirit, the spirit whispers in your ears, hey, you're a Christian, believe me. Uh, it's not in the form of an audible voice, right? Or anything mystical like that. He witnesses in a way that's very, very concrete. You see the work of the Spirit in your life. You're bearing fruit. You're sharing the gospel with other people. People are coming to Christ. Um, you, you have sympathy for the poor, for, for those who are weak. You're, you're, you're living out the Christian faith, and you see this. And that's the Spirit of God witnessing, as you observe it, witnessing to your own spirit, to yourself, that you are, in fact, a Christian. He provides you with evidence of his presence in your life by illuminating Scripture to you, right? Prior to be, becoming a Christian, you would look at the Bible and it didn't make sense to you. There were a bunch of stories that you felt were not relevant to your life. But then all of a sudden, the, the scriptures come to life to you. Uh, you're being drawn into fellowship with God through prayer and through praise. Your affections are stirred when you hear about Jesus. You're producing spiritual fruit. And, and, and the Spirit is showing you grace in your life. You, you start seeing, man... You start seeing all the, all the ways that God is blessing you and, and, and applying grace in your life. These are signs of the Spirit. Um, he enables you to minister effectively to others. Now, if the Spirit is evident in your life, this bears witness that you abide in Him and He abides in you. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us his spirit. That's what it means. You can see the spirit uh, moving in your life. He's given uh, us the, the spirit of God. Finally, let's look at point number three in the outline. Point number three is how to obtain assurance. How do we obtain this assurance? First, it is important to address or to speak first to those of you who are proud, self-righteous people who assume that you are qualified for salvation on the basis of a high and false estimation of yourself. So, 
for a little bit, I'm just going to talk to you, those of you who are out there. If you are a proud, self-righteous person who assumes that you are qualified for salvation on the basis of a high and false estimation of yourself, I would start by saying that you need to see yourself for who you really are. You're deceived. If you want to see yourself for who you really are, look at the commands of God and see where you stand before them. Look at number one. Do you love God with all your heart? God's law is often referred to as a mirror, so that when you read his law, you recognize how much you failed it. And you see yourself as a sinner in need of grace. If you don't start there, there's no hope for you. Assurance can only come to you if you repent from your deception and trust only in the work of Christ as your only hope as revealed in Scripture. Assurance of faith is obtained when you witness the work of the Spirit in your life, both in your trust on the gospel and your obedience to God's word. So God is calling you to repent, to to stop tricking yourself. Look outward. Look to what God says is the truth. Look at it like a mirror and allow it to show you who you really are. And until you see yourself as a sinner, not just theoretically, that you actually identify with it, that you mourn after it, that you're qualified at that point to to receive the, the good news, the grace of God, of salvation, that if you put your trust in the Savior, not your own uh, self-assurance and self-justification, but the justification found in the fact that Jesus paid for your sins if you put your trust in him. Now I'm going to switch audience. I'm going to talk to the troubled Christian, one of you out there, the troubled Christian who is struggling with assurance. I'll say that there may be times when it is vital that you test yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. In fact, we have a command to do so, 2 Corinthians 13.5. However, there are times, for you struggling Christian out there with assurance, there are times when you ought to cease from that task. The reason why this is important to know, when to seek or when to cease from the task of self-examination. The reason why this is important is because there is a way of doing self-examination that's very sinful. For example, some believers in their quest to obtain full assurance have set their focus entirely inward and have gotten caught in a vicious, vicious cycle of guilt, so much so that they become their own accuser and remain in a state of self-imposed condemnation. Now, for many Christians, this may seem like the most pious thing to do, right? To, to have a, like a, a worm theology, to, to, to look inward, and to remain in that state of grieving. For the people outside, they say, man, this person's holy. This person is constantly on his knees, shaking and and, and constantly examining himself and finding all sorts of sin to repent of. This may seem like a pious thing to do, to constantly look inward and untangle every bit of sin you find within you and mourn over it as a way to guilt yourself before the Lord. 
But what you often see is that this kind of person who is morbidly introspective is willing to, conf to confess all kinds of sins that they find within themselves except the very sin that they're committing in the process, which is the sin of trying to be their own Holy Spirit. And underneath it all, there's a hidden problem that informs them to be this way. This hidden problem is the person's false understanding of the character of God. This kind of Christian has the false idea that God is looking for reasons to damn you and looking for reasons to surprise you with the report that your repentance wasn't genuine. Is that, is that God? Is that the God of the Bible? He's trying to trick you? This kind of Christian needs to put aside his doubts, at least for a moment, and ask himself, is God like that? Is he strategically trying to catch people out and setting us up so that we think we're saved when we're not? Is he looking for an excuse to damn you? The answer is no. God sent his son so that if you believe in him, you have forgiveness and has called you to believe in this. Simple. Now, I'm not saying... In no way am I saying that the problem is that the person is repenting too much. What I'm saying is that this kind of person may be repenting for the wrong thing. If you're this kind of Christian, the real focus of repentance should be on the sin of unbelief. You're doubting the gospel, what the Bible says about you. What God says about you in the gospel is authoritative truth and not your own self-condemnation. Trust in the word of God and not your feelings. Even if, the self, even if you have self-condemning ones, trust in the word of God and what it says about you as a sinner and a recipient of God's grace. Uh, just concluding here, assurance of salvation can be obtained primarily by trusting wholeheartedly in the gospel and the promises of the word of God and not in your own ideas. Secondly, assurance is obtained by examining the fruit of sanctification in your life and how it matches with the description of a true Christian according to God's word. Notice how everything is the God, God's word. That's where you measure, right? And finally, it's seen through the witness of the Holy Spirit's work in your life as well as proof that you're in him and that he is in you. When we compare a biblical understanding of salvation and the verses that many false religions who never assure you of salvation and all that they say about salvation, we should feel blessed in comparison to these other religions. Most of these religions don't assure you or even give you access to assurance of salvation. Yet, we're truly blessed to know that God has not left us in the dark. He's, giving, he's given us a special revelation, access to infallible truth. The knowledge of our salvation helps to empower us as well and to work for the Lord with great confidence. If you, if you don't even know you're saved, you're, 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 you're never going to move forward. You're never going to be active in the faith. You're going to be paralyzed in your, in your uh, prayer closet. You're not going to be confident enough to, to move and serve and to help other Christians come and, and see and receive what you know you have received. This is the empowerment of having great confidence and assurance in, in what the scripture says about salvation.
Think about those who have suffered and died for the sake of Christ. And they were able to endure persecution because of their confidence in the word of God, which assured them that once they die, they were going to be with the Lord. That's, that's powerful. And my hope is that we would increase our faith and assurance. Uh, as, as it says in Second uh, Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. This is, a, this is a command for us as believers to confirm our calling and election and praise God that he has given us the means to know for sure that we're truly in him and, and he's given us this access. We can open up the pages of the Bible and we can receive God's word, that which doesn't change, that which is eternal in comparison to our thoughts, the, the, the ideas of the world, our doubts we have something that is solid, that never changes, and that sheds light into our dark hearts and into our dark minds. So praise God that he's given us his word for our assurance. Uh, This concludes the lesson for today. Are there any uh, comments or questions about anything I've said? Yes, ma'am.
Struggles. Trusting in the Lord. Amen. And this is this is the blessed assurance that we have, like the hymnal says, blessed assurance. Yep. Amen. That's it, baby. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Um, guys, let me go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you again for revealing to us through your word, all the characteristics of a true believer. We understand that you have called us to assurance in Christ. Help us not to only examine ourselves in light of your word, but that we would also believe what it says concerning the promises we have in the gospel. May we never doubt your faith. It help us to trust it, even when we are weak in faith. Thank you for your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.